Hello and welcome back to Hiff Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy Hiff Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Lucy Foley and C.L. Taylor live in conversation at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Choir and Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion between two of crime fiction's most celebrated authors. translated into 25 languages. Um, Sleep was a Richard and Judy pick, and the TV rights have been acquired, so see it shortly on a screen near us. That's right, and here, of course, we have the magnificent Lucy Foley, who has been a New York Times and a Sunday Times bestseller. She's written three books. Her second book, The Guest List, um, has just reached the two million sales mark in the US. And her new book, yeah. And her new book is The Paris Apartment. Start by introducing our, our books. Yeah, sure. Shall I go first? Okay. Um, yeah, we've never done this before, so bear with us. <laughs> and also, thank you all for coming. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. yeah, I hope there's not too many hangovers in the audience. Um, I stopped drinking early on last night. <laughs> Fresh as a daisy here. Um, so, yeah, my current book is called The Guilty Couple, and it's about a woman called Olivia. Who, she's a pretty ordinary woman, um, she's a wife, she's a mother, she owns her own business, and then she suddenly gets arrested, and the charge is conspiracy to try and murder her husband. She goes through a trial, and she gets convicted and sent to prison for 10 years. While she's in the courtroom, she looks across to her husband, sort of mentally asking him to stand up and and defend her and say something and he smirks and that's when she realizes she's been set up so the book is about when she comes out of jail five years later and she's befriended her thief cellmate smithy and together they set out to steal the evidence that proves that olivia was set up and it's brilliant it's so good uh, the Paris Apartment is a, it's a murder mystery, it's a love letter to Paris, a sort of exploration of the grime beneath the guilt. Um, Jess uh, turns up to stay with her brother Ben. Uh, he's been living in this rather swanky Parisian apartment, um, but when she arrives, Ben is missing, and she begins to suspect from various clues around the apartment, and also the rather suspicious behaviour of the other inhabitants of this this building, that something really nasty has happened to him. Um, And so she's like our sort of de facto detective in the book, pulling the thread. Mm -hmm. So we've both kind of got main characters that are setting out to kind of solve riddles. Because, I mean, although in The Guilty Couple, Olivia knows that Dominic was behind her being framed, there's also a Ben Cop called Danny, a female Ben Cop, mm. and a mysterious third person who's texting Dominic, seemingly pulling the strings. Um, and in yours, you've got Jess, who turns up and finds that her brother is missing, and then she starts finding some very disturbing things mm. that suggest a crime's been committed. Mm. Why did you decide to approach it from the point of view of, of Jess kind of uncovering the clues? I really 
wanted, I, I really didn't want to go down, I wanted to have a detective figure, mm-hmm. I suppose, in the book, but I didn't want to go down the police procedural route, I didn't want any of that, um, and I love the idea of having a sort of civilian detective, as it were, um, but also someone who kind of operated on really both sides of the law or the wrong side of the law, um, but was also still a heroine. So she's got a kind of massive distrust of authority. Um, she uh, is sort of running away from uh, some bad stuff she did back home. You know, so I, I wanted her to be this sort of vigilante figure, I suppose. Um, and I just had such fun writing her. Um, her voice came to me so strongly. Um, and she's like my sort of naughty alter ego <laughs> to think or like the version of me that, that you know would do all these brave things and kind of knock on all these doors and um yeah because she knows how to pick locks and things as well yes so when when the book starts you realize that she's on the run from something and but you don't know quite what that is so she's almost quite a mistrustful character at the beginning you, you know you don't know if she's up to no good or not Yes, was that, no, that was absolutely deliberate. Um, you know, I love the obviously the unreliable narrator. Um, all of my narrators are unreliable, but she is, you know, she's this kind of framing narrator, I suppose. But you're still not sure how much you trust her. You know that she's keeping things back for you. You don't know whether that's sort of um, duplicitous reasons or whether it is. So, so yeah, I think you're constantly questioning. I want the, the reader to be constantly kind of asking these questions. Um, and of course, you've got Olivia, who is. Actually, she's good. She's a good... She, you know, she hasn't... I think she's never stolen yeah. anything. Yeah. She's, she's never done anything bad at the start of the book. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all righteous. But then I, yeah. love, I love that you also then have her sort of... Um, you know, her kind of... Her, her really quite criminal sidekick, yeah. Smithy, who's just yeah. such a wonderful character um, to read about. And, you know, really... Ha- she's a kind of career criminal, isn't she? Yeah. Like a life of crime. But you just, you're rooting for her as a reader, I think. Um, she's such a fun character. How did she kind of come to you as a... Yeah, I, I felt like, because Livia's quite a sort of straight character who's never broken the law before, I wanted her to have a sidekick. I mean, one thing, I mean, I don't know if you find this in novels, when you've got your main character, you need someone to, to bounce off. Mm-hmm. They need to have a conversation with someone, or their cat, or their dog, but, but something that they can talk to. And, and I just thought, when Olivia comes out and she's trying to steal this evidence um, that proves she was set up, she has not got the skills to, you know, mm. break into houses or um, plan a heist and all this kind of stuff. So she needs somebody that can do that. And Smithy has those skills because Smithy is a pickpocket, she's a thief, uh, she's a shoplifter, um, and she's a massive Harry Houdini fan. She has this book in the cell. Um, and this is a real book, and I went and bought it. And as well as it having Harry Houdini's magic secrets, it, he was also fascinated by criminals and how criminals um, manage to do what they do. There's a great little article in the book on how people steal diamonds um, using a, a kind of sidekick. Um, and so I made Smithy fascinated by this mm-hmm. um, and kind of built her up from there. And there's that wonderful, there's this wonderful scene, I don't know if it's too spoilery, but they're trying to pickpocket something, and Liv, Olivia, is the one that has to do it for various reasons. Um, and she just, it's so human, it's so, you really empathise with her, because she just can't do it, yeah. she just kind of bottles it, and Smithy's looking at her like, come on, I'm creating the distraction, you know, yeah. you're just 
banging around. Um, no, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very human. You've got a massive cast of characters in the apartment, and they are all suspicious. So Ben's disappeared, and Jess is trying to work out what's happened. And because she's staying in his apartment, she meets the other people that live there. And they all have a different voice. Um, and they all have something suspicious about them. So as, you, as a reader, reading through, through the Paris apartment, you're like, oh, I think it's them. No, I think it's them. No, I think it's them. How did you work out which sort of um, suspicious activity to give each character? Because we, we, before, before this event, we talked about whether we were plotters or pantsers. Um, pantsing is writing by the seat of your pants, and I'm a potter, and Lisa is a pantser. Um, and so she said to me she had like a vague idea and started writing. So did the characters come to you as you wrote, or did you have a vague idea of them and, and what their suspicious nature was? So I had an idea of their sort of types, if you know what I mean. So I suppose literally the the kind of characters that my publishers have put on the back cover of the book, you know, the sort of scorned wife, but you know, but they were very much kind of cardboard cutouts yeah. when I when I sort of did as much plotting as I do before I start writing. And then I sort of, I suppose, write my way into knowing those characters. Um, and it's almost, this probably sounds really naff, but it's almost like kind of sitting down with them and having a conversation with them and finding, finding out all their secrets. Um, and I love the kind of first person point of view for that because it feels very confessional um, but you can also keep quite a lot back uh, you know you're sort of presenting the best version of yourself I suppose um, so yeah I could never plan all that in advance which is why I'm just completely in awe um, of how you do it and I think one thing I was struck when reading The Guilty Couple was just I was so aware of how beautifully it was constructed you know it was just all the beats come in exactly the right places and that's one of the things I find the hardest as a writer, I think. Um, I want to kind of keep all the secrets close to my chest until the end and then sort of vomit them all out at you at the end. Um, and so I have to kind of go back as a pantser. You know, I sort of do this very kind of messy draft and I've kind of vaguely got the story and my characters down, but then I have to retroactively go back and sort of make sure things are hitting at the right um, times. And so I was just absolutely in awe of that. So you, do you plan exactly what's going to happen at every stage? No, I've tried, I've tried a different... So over the course of nine books, um, I've repeatedly searched for a method that makes novel writing easy. And I have Me not too. found it. I'm Anyone sorry. It? <laughs> Any aspiring authors go, these guys know how to make it easy. No, I'm sorry. Um, so I have, I have tried pantsing. Um, and although I enjoyed the process, I had the worst edi um, edits of my life. Um, that took me three months to do. So I was like, I'm, not, I'm never going to pants a book again. I've tried um, outlining because I saw in an interview with James Patterson that he outlines before he writes a book. And I thought, well, he's pretty successful. I'll give that go. <laughs> um, and it did make the writing easier. But for me, because I'd already written a 13,000 word outline, I lo it lost some of the magic. Mm, mm. Um, so where I kind of sit now is somewhere in between. So I've got a whiteboard in my office. And I will sort of, I, I use the four-act structure. And that has eight sequences, which are kind of like the main sort of exciting turning points in the book. 
and I will typically know what those are, mm. and then I'll have a few scenes at the beginning, and maybe a few scenes at the end, and scattered around, and then loads and loads of gaps. Mm. Um, and those gaps get filled as I write the book, and I get to know the characters as I write mm. the book. I mean, I do know them at the beginning, but um, you know they undergo multiple name changes. I've got a notebook, and in it, Olivia was called Alex and Laura and Louise, and you know finally she became. Olivia, because that fitted. So it, it does change as I go. And in terms of the twisty plot, that gave me lots of headaches as I was writing it, because I think I've got no idea how to get myself out of this corner, because mm. um, I need to get my character to here, and that needs to tie in with this. And so what I'll do when I reach those points is just stop and mm. just think, go for, you know, take a dog for a walk, that sort of thing, and wait and hope that something will come to me. And when it does, that's the, that's the magical bit about writing, they, those kind of eureka moments, you're like, yes, yeah. it all fits together. I think you live for those moments, yeah. really, as a writer, don't you? Yeah. So it may read easily, like I just applied some <laughs> magic formula, but actually there was a lot of head-scratching going on. Craft, yeah. And How many drafts do you do to get it as polished as it is, considering you sort of pants it as you go. Do you know, I have no idea how many, really, because I write in quite a chaotic way. This is all just going to sound horrible to anyone listening, like, really disorganised. But um, I actually write in notebooks first, uh, mm. because I find that's the kind of freest way just to get the words down on the page, not worry too much about, you know, getting, getting every word perfect, um, just sort of get the story out and then refine from there. And I, I sort of worked out that way. When I come to then type up from my notebooks, I'm really writing every word twice. So I suppose you could say, by the time it's on my computer, mm-hmm. that's a second draft already. Right. Um, and then, oh, I mean, probably 10. No, <laughs> that's probably too many. No, no. So, so, but, but it's probably more than one hand. Um, yeah. Do you actually physically start again? No, or, or that's the tweaking? thing. It's just tweaking, okay. tweaking, tweaking. But but it's probably you know every word is probably different by right. the end. I suppose. Yeah, um, I give my editor some headaches. But it's really difficult because I think when you're writing a whodunit or a psych thriller with lots of twi- you know you sort of you've lost your innocence um, mm. by well by the time you've written the first draft. Yeah. So I think as the the author, um, it's then that constant trying to work out have you got the balance right, everything seems very obvious to you, it seems like the reader will get everything immediately Um, there's a particular twist that comes about halfway through um, the Paris apartment and it just seemed impossible to me that the reader wouldn't guess, you know, coming to it fresh. Um, but I think that's just because you you, you, you sort of know all the nuts and bolts. And yeah. you, um, so you have to rely, well, I find I have to rely on um, uh, very honest kind of beta readers, my editor, my husband, lots of yeah. other people, um, yeah. to tell me. That's why I don't tell my editor and my agent too much about my book before I start. Now, they could claim that that's because I don't know what I'm about to write. But in my head, it's because I want those fresh eyes. Yeah. Because if they, if they don't know who done it or what happens, then I can genuinely find out whether my gut instinct is right and whether something is too easy to guess mm. or if I've done sufficient groundwork and, mm. you know, it does catch them out. And um, there was actually something that my editor picked up in The Guilty Couple and she said, 
I was really suspicious of X, and I was like, right, that's going to need some work then. Interesting. She was correct. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So I had to work out why she was suspicious of this person, and then remove that and yeah. just and reframe things. Um, but uh, yeah, I was I was glad. I was glad of that. But it's so interesting. Um, when you hear the, the kind of first reader's response, because often I think I've been really clever and I've sort of concealed certain things and made other things really obvious, and you realise actually the things that you think you're concealing often in that first draft, you're kind of actually, you've got a big red flashing arrow towards yeah. them. Um, yeah. I once did an event with Ruth Ware, and she said that she, um, her editor gave her what sounds like this amazing kind of edit where she basically went through the whole book and told her exactly what she was thinking as the reader at every stage mm. in the book. I thought that would be so useful. I need yeah, to do that for me. That's fascinating. Um, I know Claire, Claire McIntosh does that. When she plots her books, she, she also writes what she sees as the reader's journey. That's so amazing. what the reader should be thinking here and here and here, which I think is brilliant. Um, I need to learn how to I do that. I don't think my brain's big enough yeah. for that. <laughs> I don't have enough space. I don't have enough distance. Um, back to themes. Um, I feel like in both books there is this sort of fascination with the sort of con man yeah. figure. I don't want to give too much away um, in terms of your book, but um, where did that come from and why do you think that's, that's such a big thing at the moment, I think? It's a, it's yeah. A fascinated, the fascination of popular culture. Yeah, I think, yeah, again, I've kind of caught up on a, a particular zeitgeist. Um, when Lucy and I were talking about this panel in advance, we were like, isn't it weird that in 2019 we both wrote books about people who were sort of gathered together and, you know, mine was on an island and mm. yours was a snowy Scottish cut-off-from-the-world location. And then, and then I went, did you watch that BBC adaptation of Agatha Christie's And Then There Was None? And she went, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and then I said to... And I said to Shari Lapina as well, who also wrote one, did you? Yes. <laughs> and so we all brought out these books thinking we were being totally original, putting a spin on Agatha Christie. And, but I, I don't know what it was that, um, that inspired The Guilty Couple. All I know is that I love a heist. I love a heist movie. Mm. And um, I just went through a stage of massively binging them, including all of the old uh, sort of 1950s, 1960s ones, like Rafifi and The Killing. And they're just brilliant. And I just thought, I mean, I know there are heists um, involving women, um, and it's particularly been done as sort of next Netflix series and stuff, but it's always about stealing money. Mm. Or in the case of some of the ones with male um, uh, counterparts, um, stealing jewels. And mm. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have somebody steal money or jewels. So I was like, what could somebody steal? What could somebody plan a heist to steal? And I thought, what about evidence? Mm. Evidence that, that you were framed. And that was like the starting point, really. I mean, as it turned out, the, the heist only takes place in one chapter mm. in the book. But I still got to do my little planning meeting. Um, I didn't go so far as to give the characters, you know, false names and disguises and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was brilliant. I had so much fun thinking, right, so this is going to be the first obstacle of the high. She gets over it this way and the friends help her this way. And, and, and that was the beginning. Um, but it, I mean, it's such a small part in the book, really. But all it takes is that, is that one thought to, to just build the book on. What was it for the Paris apartment? 
So, well, the, the first kernel of inspiration for the Paris apartment was I love, um, when I'm writing a book, or when actually when I'm editing a book, I love just going away, uh, renting a kind of cheap Airbnb somewhere, away from kind of distractions of home and toddler and like laundry, whatever, and, and just focusing. And I'd rented this um, apartment in this rather spooky apartment building in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, I mean, I've never stayed in an Airbnb like it. I think it was literally like someone's granny, um, you know, and, and all of her wonderful kind of old furniture was still there and beautiful old um, pictures and things, but it was quite eerie, but had beautiful kind of old bones, high ceilings, big windows that looked onto the central courtyard. Um, and I would spend quite a lot of time looking out of the window, not working on the drafts of the guest list that I was meant to be finishing. Um, and I would see people coming and going, I'd hear people walking up the kind of wonderful spiral staircase. Um, I'd also hear very strange noises from the apartment above me late at night. um, Sounds of something really heavy being dragged across the floor. (laughs) It's really strange. Um, And I mean, I think the story just found me. I was like, there's a story here and I want to be the one to tell it and possibly something really dodgy going on. And actually, maybe I should have called the police. I don't know. (laughs) Investigated that. But I'm not Jess, so I couldn't do it. You know, I'm too much of a coward. Um, So I think that was the kernel. But then... I was really inspired by um, Hitchcock film, oh, yeah. um, obviously Rear Window um, <laughs> yeah. it was a big inspiration, um, but also films like Rosemary's Baby, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to get that kind of gothic sense of the building itself almost being like a character in the novel, this sense that, you know, I wanted to find a way... Um, of isolating the characters, even though they're in the middle of a capital city. You know, the other two books are very much kind of isolated rural yeah. locations. Um, and so really the building was, was my way of doing that. Um, once you kind of close that big iron front gate, mm-hmm. um, it's like you've entered another world and you're sort of swallowed up by this place. Yeah. Um, the fact that Jess doesn't speak French as well adds yes. to that sense of alienation. Because one of the issues that you have when you write that kind of sort of... <laughs> sort of closed mystery book is that you need to come up with a reason why people can't use mobile phones yeah. why they can't ring the police yeah. and that can be quite limiting so to put somebody in a country where they can't speak the language that was very clever I you thought. absolutely hit the nail on the head because I did I suddenly realized you know I'd set myself up with all these problems because why would you not if you were Jess you go into your the, the apartment your brother's been living in there are all these really suspicious clues around and people behaving weirdly why would you not just call the police and yeah. kind of and then they come in and solve it and there we go. It's not a very long novel in yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> so just to kind of show you the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, I had to find ways of really isolating her. Um, so she doesn't speak the language at all. You know, I've got a bit of conversational French, but she's got really very little beyond bonjour. Um cell phone signal, not cell phone oh, signal, yes. a mobile data, data running out, yeah. out. Like she doesn't have much cash at all, um, uh, so little things like that, but I do think the not speaking the language thing was a really fun thing to play with, um, and that was inspired by uh, a wonderful book called The Wheel Spins, uh, which got made into a film by Hitchcock called The Lady Vanishes, um, and it all takes place, it's kind of like the original girl on the train, I suppose you could say. Um, the action all takes place on a sort of train speeding across Europe. Um, and our heroine knows that this woman has been disappeared on this train, but no one else speaks the language. Or, and they, pret- they start pretending that she's kind of going mad. Spoiling things a bit here. Um, 
And I just thought it was so cleverly done um, and wanted to have a sort of element of that. Oh, nice. So we were both inspired by films in a way. Me watching loads of heists and, and you watching Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. Um, where else do you find your inspirations? Um, it really it, it really depends. I've kind of moved through over the course of nine books, um, starting with things that terrified me, um, <laughs> like, you know, horrible ex-boyfriends coming back into my life, or toxic friendships landing me in a situation where I was unsafe, um, child going missing, I've got a son, that was an inspiration. And then I kind of moved on to um, sort of news-based stories. Mm-hmm. So for my book, The Escape, I saw... Um, uh, on Facebook, um, the police in Avon and Somerset, where, where I live, were saying, this woman has run away with her child. Um, please report her to the police. Um, mm. She's a danger to the child. And the family of the woman were like, she's not the danger. <gasps> she's on the run from... And I was like, oh, wow. oh imagine being that woman. So that, that was literally the inspiration for the escape. Um, and then the fear, which is about a woman who confronts the man who groomed her as a child, was based on the story of the teacher who groomed his pupil and took her to France mm. in a massive manhunt. So, um, so I have written books based on, on the news. And then there's more just sort of flights of fancy. Mm. I mean, obviously, Sleep was inspired by Agatha Christie's. <laughs> We've worked out, yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah Strangers. I can't remember what, what inspired Strangers. Um, but uh, it just varies, you know, wherever it comes from. It's interesting that you said that when you were writing, uh, doing the edits for the guest list, you had the idea for, for the Paris apartment, because I'm very much a sort of monogamous writer, um, <laughs> in that when I'm working on something, it's all I can focus on, it's all I can think about, and there is no room in my brain for any other ideas to get in. And I find this really frustrating, because when I finish a book, people will say to me, what's, what's next, what's the next book? And I'll say, I have absolutely no idea, because I almost need to sort of decompress and mm. let those characters go to make space for a new idea. Mm. So are you the sort of person that is bombarded with ideas all the time? Or? No, I think it's more that by the time I'm on, you know, the tenth draft or whatever it is, I'm mm. so, it sounds awful, I'm not bored of the current book, but it's, it's, that's the point yeah. at which it really feels like work, I think. Yeah. You know, the, I'm in the, very much the honeymoon stage with the book I'm writing at the moment, and I'm just, I just never wanted to end because I'm having so much fun, and I know when it comes to the next draft, it's going to be kind of confronting all the mistakes I've made in this one. And so I think it's that by the time I'm at that editing stage that I was at with the guest list, you know, there's this new idea that's sort of forming, and it's it's kind of, yeah, I'm definitely not monogamous, you know, it's the next kind of, like, you're flirting, with the, flirting next one. with the next one. Um, because it seems so kind of perfect and glimmering and yeah. whole and, you know, all the razzle-dazzle because you haven't started working on it yet and, and discovering where all the problems lie, and, yeah. um, which is part of the process of, of writing a book. Um, so I think it's more that. Um, Can I ask something that the audience are probably thinking? You've had a phenomenal success over the last couple of years. I mean, you know, the two million um, sales of, of, of the guest list. And before that, you wrote historicals. And I'm sure the sales were great, but, <laughs> but it, it, you, weren't, you weren't like this massive phenomenon like you are now. How, I mean, sometimes you see these debut authors who do have that success right off the bat, which must be really overwhelming. 
But for you, having sort of started, I guess, more normally, that sort of more normal author experience, to then have massive success when you've changed genre, how, how, how has that felt? How has that been? Well, it's lovely. I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's lovely to know <laughs> that lots of people have re- read the books. Um, uh, it's quite surreal, the, the stuff in the States, because I've never actually seen a copy of my book on a shelf in the States, you know, haven't been over there um, yet. Uh, two of the books were really published um, during COVID, during the pandemic, so it, that, that stuff doesn't feel real, so it'll be quite fun to, to go over there and kind of meet, meet readers and things. Um, and it's lovely, but to be honest, I don't know about you, but I'm just always worrying about the next book and the next deadline yeah. and, um, and where I would get the idea from. Um, and also just my real happy place. Well, my two happy places as an author are sitting with my notebook in a coffee shop, mm-hmm. just at that point where you're just suddenly, things are working and you're immersed in the story. That's just, that's what I live for as an author. And then it's moments like this yeah. um, when you're actually meeting readers, which is so, you know, something I don't think we'll ever take for granted again. It's not the same looking at a Zoom screen. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's lovely to see so many of you here. And I just heard earlier that this is the biggest Harrogate ever in terms of numbers. So I think Back we're all desperate bag. to get out and about. So I think one thing that we both do, um, and I was very aware of when reading The Guilty Couple, was um, the sort of sympathetic portrayal of antagonists. So you've got Danny, um, I guess, as this sort of bent cop, um, and you really, really, I'm thinking, do you want to spoil things? I don't know how <laughs> but you really, really don't want her to... Um, you know, you don't want her to succeed, but at the same time, you really feel for her, I think. Yeah. Um, do you think that's really important? Um, do you think those characters need to feel kind of really fully fleshed out and, and, and sympathetic? Yeah, I mean, because because there are basically three antagonists in The Guilty Couple. Mm. Uh, there's Dominic, the ex-husband, there's the mysterious texter, mm. and there's Danny. I thought... I can't have the readers all hating all of them. All of them. Um, I mean, you know, you, you are very likely to hate Dominic and that's what I want you to feel. <laughs> I really hated him. <laughs> but, um, but, with, but with Danny, I just wanted it to be a bit more ambiguous because this is the first time that I've written a book with a cop in it. Um, I've deliberately avoided it so far in my career because it involves a lot of research. Yes, um, so massive thanks to author um, Neil, who is a Neil Lancaster, who is a author and an ex-Met detective. Um, I sent him so many text messages late at night that I think his mum, his <laughs> wife started to suspect we're having an affair. Um, <laughs> I've met her since. And uh, it's all fine. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, so I had to do loads of research because, you know, normally I pretty much just make things up. I'll do a little bit of research here and there. Um, so so I, wanted, I wanted Danny to be realistic. And she, she, ne- she, ne- <laughs> she needed to um, have a way to have met Dominic and also Olivia. Um, so she's also a personal trainer mm. in, her, in her downtime. Um, and um, for those readers that have written on Amazon that that's really unlikely, Neil told me that that happens. Um, so I'll just point that out. But, um, but yeah, but I, I wanted to, because when I was thinking about, like, why, why do cops become bent? The main thing is typically money. Mm. And I didn't want her just to be go, to getting the money from Dominic, 
just for greed. There had mm. to be a, a greater reason to that. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say she's got a sister who's a, who's a drug addict mm. and she wants to pay for her to go to rehab. So I wanted her to be balanced. You kind of hate her for what she's doing, but she almost kind of hates herself as well. And you feel really sorry for her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that was an interesting one to play, to play with because mm. she is so conflicted all the time. I think it was so clever because I never quite knew how I felt about her. Yeah, I did feel really sorry about that. I really, really did. We know she was doing some bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her to succeed. Yeah. You wrote done. the Paris apartment in lockdown. You told me the other mm. day. So you must have had to rely on your memory mm. a lot of Paris, but it was very infused with Paris. So did you take notes when you were there, or? So I think I started taking notes and then, um, but then assumed I'd be able to go back, you know, in the way that you do, you just hop on the Eurostar or whatever. Um, uh, so Google Earth or Google Street View is my friend. I literally walked through Paris on Google and, and kind of did a lot of research from, from yeah, my lockdown kind of garret. Yeah. Um, but nothing replaces the real thing. You know, so I had a sort of list of things that if I managed to make it back to Paris before my deadline for the book, you know, those are the things I kind of wanted to check and, and just to kind of infuse it with some real, real flavour of the city. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be able to go back in July 21. I think there was a, a brief window um, where we both travelled a bit. Well, we were living in Belgium, and I think it was that much easier to travel uh, on the continent. Um, and so, it was, I mean, it was just wonderful. I just sort of dragged my husband and baby around and, um, and, and ticked every, everything off on my list. But I think it was also, it was a wonderful sort of escapism, you know, in the middle of, in the middle of lockdown to be able to sort of escape to Paris and yeah, imagine this yeah. place of sort of crowded metro carriages and bars and, you know, people touching each other. Which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just felt so foreign. It was quite yeah. strange. Um, Writing it in, in, you know, kind of the depths of lockdown, it felt like another world, another universe, um, uh, which can be quite helpful, I think, for fiction. You really have to imagine yourself into it. Um, exactly. Location's a big part of your books. Uh, you know, from the sort of snowy highlands of, of your first book, The Hunting Party, to the island off Ireland um, in, your, in your second one, The Guest List. Do you, I mean, you've said you'd been to Paris and stuff. Mm. Had you also been to the other places? Yeah, so, but I mean, with both of them, really, the, the, the setting was what absolutely brought the, book to, brought the book to life. I think with the, the hunting party, the setting very much came first. Uh, I had this sort of vague idea that I wanted probably off the back of watching and then there were other two adaptations. I want to do something like that in a modern setting. Um, and then I travelled up to this very remote spot in Scottish Highlands, um, and, you know, on the drive up, we, we were reading through the instructions and they said, I was staying in a cottage there, and they said, um, in the event of very heavy snowfall, you may find you're basically trapped on this estate. You may not be able to leave or you may not be able to get there. Um, and that immediately kind of got the cold worry. I was like, this is the setting. So my poor husband, you know, we were meant to be there for a holiday and we just spent the whole week sort of tramping around in the snow. It literally started falling as we were as we were driving up, um, tramping out in the snow, um, working out, you know, oh, this would be a great place for a body to be discovered and this and that. Um, 
And then with the guest list, uh, I had the idea, I really wanted to set um, a murder mystery at a wedding because I loved the kind of structure that that gave to everything. I loved the way I could sort of play with the, you know, the different parts of the day, um, the speeches, you know, yeah. the rehearsal dinner the night before, the cutting of cake, all of that. But I didn't have my setting and I thought I wanted to set it on a Greek island. Uh, and then my editor pointed out that was um, quite mamma mia and like difficult to get in a survivor. And then I travelled to... Um, Connemara and got the boat to some of the islands off Connemara uh, and standing on Inish Boffin, you know, with the kind of wind blowing in from the Atlantic and this strange feeling because you look out to sea and you realise there's nothing between you and North America. Um, I just thought this is perfect because it's really beautiful so you could conceivably want to hold a wedding there but it's mm-hmm. also kind of nature, red and tooth and claw um, and I love the idea with those sort of settings of what that environment brings out in these very really privileged characters yeah. who are used to their creature comforts what happens when they're stripped of you know all that comfort yeah. and their cell phone signal and yeah. the whole of that does it bring out something sort of latent and feral in them absolutely yeah, yeah. that's great fun to play do with. you find that do you, do you worry that you will run out of these kind of impossible situations that you can't escape from i mean do you are you constantly looking around when you're watching things if you've got like a little notebook and like this is a way to stop them from getting in touch with the police or yeah to, from escaping or yeah. i think it's finding new ways of doing it um you know so it's not always kind of cutting everyone off and the tides coming in and you know all of yeah. that it's sort of it, you know I, I suppose the paris apartment was doing that in a sense because it was kind of in the middle of a it was a chat of kind of laying down a challenge to myself mm-hmm. And I do a kind of classic sort of golden age murder mystery setup, but within, um, you know, a kind of buzzing metropolitan yeah. city. Um, so, no, not, not really, but now maybe. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just put the fear in her, sorry, <laughs> But do you, do, you, do you have the same, do you worry about twists? I spend a lot of time worrying about twists, I think, and where yeah. the twists are coming from. Yeah, I, I do worry about twists. Twist, the twists in my book, that the ones right at the very end, are not planned. Mm. Um, and I just have to hope that they come to me as I'm writing. Because I, I know, I'm really envious of authors who know the twist before they start. Mm. So, um, like, I spoke to Sarah Pinbro, and when she wrote Behind Her Eyes, she knew that twist at the very beginning. So everything was aimed towards that twist. And I... You know, I pray for a twist to come to me, that I can write it that way. What I do instead is I plan the series of, of reveals, mm-hmm. and, um, and there will be a twist or mm. several twists, but I like there to be a final twist. Mm. And that doesn't occur to me until I'm almost at the end. And that's when I start to, start to feel a little bit panicky. <laughs> like, is it going to come? Is it going to come? And once, it didn't come until I was doing my edits. Wow. And then I had a shower and I was like, ooh, I've got an idea for the, the very last chapter. I better run it past my editor. Um, so yeah, it, I, it is quite a sort of fearful place, but also because there's been so many across psychological thrillers mm. and mysteries. Um, you don't want to do a twist that's been done before, but there are only so many twists. So, yeah, it, I find it quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about you? Do you find it stressful? Really stressful. Yeah. But I think, for me, I don't know if you find the same, I think putting your brain under that sort of stress, you know, it's not comfortable, but I think that's where the creativity happens yeah. often. Because 
even though you're not aware of it. And I think it's interesting you said um, you thought of it in the shower because it's so often the shower. I should yeah. just take a lot of, you know, 10 showers a day, you know, <laughs> in a plot hole because it's when you're doing something else, when you're in a walk, when you're kind of baking. I had, mm-hmm. I had the idea for the twist that comes in the middle of the Paris apartment. I had, um, well, I was making some scones because I didn't know what else to do because I was okay. like, I just, <laughs> never normally bake, but I was like, I literally, I... I so stuck on this, I'm not sure how it's going to work. Um, and I think your brain, your subconscious brain, is sort of constantly working over the problem, working over yeah. the problem, and you actually have to give it a little bit of space yeah. um, from your subconscious brain saying, come on, what is it, what is it, what is it? Yeah, I think um, the, hard, the harder you push it to come, the less likely it will be to come. Mm-hmm. You always have to say to yourself, I'm not going to think about it now, I'm going to paint or I'm going to walk or mm-hmm. bake or whatever. And for me, it typically comes, if it's not in the shower, it'll be just as I'm right to drop off. I'll just go to bed and I'll just be like, <gasps> and my partner's like, what? Oh. Like, it's all right, so I should pop twist. And you've got your brain into that, so it's like the subconscious is taking over. That's fascinating. Yeah. Do you keep a little notebook next to the bed? Yes, there is a notebook next to the bed. There's a little little light as well that I use. Um, but those are, but those are the, the fun, the exciting, the magical moments when it yeah. does come to you. And then, and then people just say, oh my god, that twist was so clever. And you're, and you're just like, oh, I had to work hard to do yeah, that. Thank god for that twist. Work hard. <laughs> it showed up quite late, but it did in the end. Um, it's interesting you said, you know, what, about not wanting to um, kind of repeat twists that have already been done. You know, we talked um, in, our, in our chat before this about originality, yeah. you know, and wanting to keep things fresh. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think, is, it, is, it, is that constantly a kind of concern for you with the next book? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote an article recently for Shots magazine on the evolution of the psychological thriller. Mm. Um, and I found it really interesting to look at, I mean, for me, like, the psychological thriller began, I mean, obviously years and years ago, but it, it kind of had its resurgence with um, S.J. Watson's Before I Go to Sleep and Elizabeth Holmes' um, Into the Darkest Corner. And it's moved through things to do with um, coercive relationships, mm-hmm. amnesia, alcoholism, drug taking, various psychological conditions, twins, <laughs> missing children. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's moved through different kind of phases. Mm. And when I, I particularly wanted to write The Guilty Couple because I've written lots and lots of books where the woman is kind of the victim and things are happening to her mm. and she's reacting as they happen. She's trying to work out what's going on. I wanted to try and take a step, slight sidestep with my books for this book where the worst thing has already happened. Mm. She's, already ha- she's already been framed and now it's about her taking control. Mm. Um, and in the book that I'm writing at the moment, it's another, it's, it's similar in that it's actually a group of women and something awful is happening to them but they decide to take control Mm. and I suspect because I I know a few other authors are also writing people framed trying to prove their innocence books that there may be a slight movement in in the kind of psych thriller thing to more less women as victim more women taking control Mm. which I think maybe kind of reflects you know the, the sort of uh, where we are in moved. society, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. But I think because um, you you know you know that sort of as an author that heart sink feeling when you sort of you read about someone else's new book and you think but that's the book I'm writing and you think it's going to be exactly the same and it's yeah. sort of 
But actually, I think the thing that I've learned or that I try and tell myself is that because we're all so unique, such unique, wonderful, yeah. you know, beings and writers, um, it will always feel fresh, I think, because yeah. it's you that's writing it. You yeah. know, and you have your own take on it and your own. And, and I think that will always be unique and interesting for someone to, to read. Um, Absolutely. I did notice that we had our 15 minutes. <gasps> no! <laughs> <laughs> so now would be an excellent time to ask if anybody's got a question. Over there, please. <laughs> Stew on the second row in the white shirt. <laughs> Stick your hands up against you. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, so, as Kelly, you kind of mentioned, you, you've both written in other genres, mm. uh, but your crime novels have been the things that are really, really successful. Mm. Um, and I just wondered what you think makes the crime genre so enduringly popular with readers. Well, that's a big question. Great question. <laughs> Sorry. No, really great question. But yeah, I feel like I need to go and think about it and have my answer in half an hour. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think it's the whole solving the crime thing. Mm. I think it's, it's us as amateur detectives, you know. Um, it, there's, there's a joy in trying to piece something together and, and try and work it out before the protagonist or before the detective or, or just going along with the ride. And it's also a safe form of fear as well. Mm. You know, if you're reading some kind of serial killer thriller, you're having that vicarious uh, whilst sitting comfy under a blanket with a cup of tea. Mm. You know, um, so that's what I think. Yeah, I think um, partly for me it's that I'm endlessly nosy and kind of curious about other people's lives, and and I think there's a sort of a kind of prurient sort of fascination in, in the crime itself. Um, I also think, for me, kind of coming back to my sort of golden age murder mysteries, my Agatha Christie's, there's a there's a huge satisfaction in knowing that everything's going to be it's this beautiful puzzle, right? And you're trying to solve it, as you say, and then everything's going to be sort of solved for you at the end, and the world is going to be kind of set to rights, and um, the right and moral thing is going to happen. And you know, we we really don't see a lot of that in real life. It feels like we don't see that sort of things tied up with a nice bow and the happy ending. So um, I think particularly during lockdown, I went back to a lot of my kind of Agatha Christie's and um, uh, my, uh, several other kind of golden age murder mystery, mystery writers just because I found that it's, it's strange to read a murder mystery for comfort but, yeah. but there is something infinitely comforting about yeah. it yeah yeah absolutely anybody else yeah oh, yeah and um, this question for both of you so given how phenomenal your books are the whole um, is there any author past or present that you'd ever collaborate with who would it be and why? Oh, great question. Well, my agent said to me yesterday, never collaborate with anyone. It's a nightmare. So, <laughs> um, I've always thought that it would sound fun to collaborate with somebody else. You know, you get to brainstorm. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that, um, that I would love to do, is sit around with somebody and bounce ideas off them mm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my agent said that typically one person ends up doing more of the work. And, uh, and then that leads to frustrations and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so I won't collaborate with anyone, I don't think. <laughs> but if I did, um, 
My absolute favourite crime author is Belinda Bauer. So if she was ever up for it, then, then I think I might, I might go there. Yeah, I would want to, I mean, I'd massively be sort of piggybacking and have huge kind of imposter syndrome, but, um, I mean, I'm a huge, I know she's heard, so it's really embarrassing, I'm have a fan moment, Ellie Griffiths, I'm a huge <laughs> Ellie Griffiths fan, I just love her, the I just like to see how those books get written, you know, maybe I could come up with a few ideas, um, but no, I think it, I think it would be really tricky, I would, I would feel, there'd be a real kind of intimacy in letting someone into the workings mm. of your of your brain and my kind of chaotic approach yes. to writing the book. Um, I think it'd be probably terrifying for someone else. Um, I mean, I often feel, though, like it is a huge team effort, the final book, yeah. you know, between me and my editor, but also me and, like, various poor family members and friends who are sort of endlessly brought. But some, you know, they do come up with some, some great ideas, yeah. some of the best kind of, you know, twists on twists. Um... My husband is a great, really mean proofreader because he used to be a lawyer, so he gets his red pen out. So it does feel quite collaborative and it feels, you know, it feels like a bit of a lie that there's just one name on the cover. Um, uh, I mean, it's not really a collaboration, but um, I'm currently part of uh, this new Marple collection coming oh, out. Yes. There are 12, 12 authors and we've all written a new um, Miss Marple adventure. Um, and that's just been such fun to be part of, like publishing a book with 11 other people. Um, it just feels, it feels like we're all sort of part of this yeah. sorority in a way. Yeah, um, nice. uh, it makes it all feel kind of less lonely. Um, yeah. yeah lovely. Anybody else? Hello. Uh, oh, quite a specific question for Lucy, actually. I'm going to try and avoid a spoiler with the book. But in the Paris apartment, am I right? Was one character the actual grandchild of another? Oh, oh, that is a bit of a spoiler. Is that a bit? Oh, is that too spoiler? It might be. Maybe ask, maybe ask her afterwards. Oh, sign in. You right. know. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my earlier books, people were like, oh, you know, the ending's a bit rushed. 
So I worked to make my endings more rounded. Mm. So I think I think even though it's a terrible kind of torture <laughs> to read your own reviews, it does help you become better as an author. Mm. But at some point I want to stop because I feel like I've now lost that kind of innocence mm. um, state of mind of writing where you just write for you, for fun, because there are lots of voices mm. in my head going, oh, don't do that, don't do that, don't. And I need to push those out. Mm. So I'm going to try very hard with the next one not to. I mean, I'll read blogger reviews because you're all very nice and very fair, but I'm, but I'm not going to read the, um, the maybe some of the other ones. <laughs> but that's really interesting, seeing yeah. it as constructive criticism. It can be. You know, I can take this on board. Yeah. That's very grown up. But but the thing I tell myself is, you know, if with any group of friends or at any book club I've ever been part of, like there'll be massive debate in the yeah. room. You know, not everyone's going to love it. In in you know, a group of five people, so you're just not going to get that across like a whole readership. Mm. Um, and I write books, you know, about characters that you love to hate, or you might just hate to hate them, and you might just not be having a good time, and that's fair enough. Yeah. I think that can be really marmite, um, and so I've just taught myself to accept it, or I'm going through the process of accepting it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, I just want to know, what did you both do before you started writing, and what made you decide to start writing? Okay, great question. I am. Um, I'm a bit of a poacher turned gamekeeper, or oh, the other yes, way around, because I worked. Um, I was an editor um, before I started writing, like a very junior, junior baby editor. Um, but uh, I think it was for me. It was being surrounded um, by books. You know, you walk into an editorial meeting and people are talking about you know books and plots and all of that. It felt like a really creative, inspiring space, I suppose. Um, but also seeing books at every stage of the kind of writing, punching process and realising, you know, they don't start out as that kind of glossy hardback that you see on the shelf. They they start out as a, as a, as a word document that needs a lot of work. Um, and so that made it all feel a little bit less frightening and a little bit more accessible. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to have a go at this. And... I was the opposite. I had nothing to do with publishing. I worked in e-learning, I worked for a university, um, and I had just always wanted to write a book from like the age of eight, um, and I sent a book to Ladybird Publishers when I was 11 and got my first rejection letter. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah, and, and, then, and then it took me something like another 20 years or something until I finally did get a, a acceptance letter and I got my agent. I put off writing a novel for ages because um, I was scared of rejection um, and so I kind of dipped my feet into it a little bit with short stories and short story competitions and writing for women's magazines and um, very sadly uh, when I was 33 a friend of mine died um, from brain aneurysm and nobody saw it coming and it was so sudden that I just thought I need to put my fear behind me and I need to write a book because you know life can be very short and mm -hmm. this is a dream that I've had since I was a child so I did and um, I wrote like a woman possessed and luckily for me that that first book that I wrote did end up getting me an agent and, and got me a publishing deal um, so yeah it, it's great that you are editor turns author but I would like for anybody who is writing 
you don't have to be. You don't no, have to have a connection in the publishing not. industry. I didn't. I didn't know anyone. <clears throat> I bought the Writers and Artists Yearbook. I looked through mm. to see who represented my genre, mm. and I and I sent in my synopsis and, and all yeah. that. So I was found on the slosh pile, really. And actually, yeah, I should say it sort of sounds like I went, you know, went to, but um, but I was a really junior editor, and I didn't really have any, you know, connections in the industry at that time, and I was very conscious of you know, the fact that this could go horribly wrong and I could end up with kind of egg on my face. So I didn't want to send it to anyone that I worked with professionally yeah. um, who would know who I was. So I sort of did exactly the same, actually. Drew up my kind of wish list of agents um, and, and went through the kind of usual channels um, and, and sort of sent, sent it in. Um, three chapters, synopsis, yeah. the whole thing. But I think, I think definitely working in the industry made it feel more accessible, more yeah. possible, you know, um, uh, sort of seeing that whole process. Um, so I think that really helped. Yeah. Are we out of time? I'm looking at the front row. <laughs> um, I'm afraid we're out of time now, um, but we will be signing in the signing tent room. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. It's been lovely looking at all your smiley faces, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.